Listener Production. G'day, I'm agricultural scientist Chris Russell, and welcome to Rebuilding Australia, our animals and land. With an area close to the size of the United Kingdom not only burned out, but almost effectively sterilised, we need to start planning for the regeneration of both farmland and bush from the soil up. In this episode, We'll look at what the implications of the 2020 bushfires have been for the land and how it has and will continue to affect our soil and land management. So what now needs to happen? And what can we learn from our Indigenous history that's going to help us? To guide us through these questions, I've invited soil scientist Philip Mulvey. Philip has businesses in environmental soil science, and soil remediation, and he's got over 35 years' experience as a practising soil scientist and entrepreneur and a passionate advocate of landscape repair. Welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Philip. Thanks for inviting me, Chris, but let me just start... From on my behalf and our team and offer our condolences um, to all those who have lost um, loved ones in the fire, our sympathies to people who have businesses like ourselves that do get affected by fire, and finally our gratitude for all the volunteers um, at every level, including um, the firefighters. Yeah, well, here, here, so, so, say of all of us, it's been in my lifetime, and I would suggest almost in the history of Australia, the 2020 situation of fires has been basically never been seen before to that level. Would that be right? Yes. Uh, within Australia, that would be right in terms of the size. We have had large-scale canopy, very hazardous fires before, and Black Saturday um, is a good example. But yes, the scale of, of land burnt on this occasion is just extraordinary. Now, before white man came to Australia, the Aboriginals had developed a kind of bespoke method of using fire. And in fact, it it would be fair to say that a lot of the country that's woodland now was almost kept like savannah by the Aboriginals. Why did that work so well? And what's changed? Why didn't we kind of continue with that pattern? Look, it'd be fair to say that the forests were woodlands and some of the woodlands we see, particularly out west that are now invaded by um, spiny acacia, would have been savannah. So spiny acacia is like sort of wattle. Yes, it is, but but it's an imported weed that, that's causing a, a huge amount of problem in agricultural land. But just in regard to the burning practices, Aboriginals had burning practices that varied depending on where you were and what they were trying to achieve. And long-term observation of soil and landscape. For instance, um, if you look at the Mount Nash where um, the fires have gone through down in Kosciuszko and uh, Victoria, that actually has a seeding cycle of 20 years. So if you burn more frequently in 30 years, particularly on a canopy fire, you will actually control the growth of Mount Nash and reduce it. So if you want to control a forest or reduce a forest or contain it, you have a different fire program to what you would, for instance, on a savannah. So for instance, down that area through the... uh, the southern highlands of Australia, or sorry, the Kosciuszko and into Victorian snowfields, if you burn more frequently or let a canopy fire, a severe canopy fire get going more frequently than than once every 20 years, you actually wipe out 
that particular woodland that they were controlling for the species they wanted to harvest, so that the fauna that they grew in, in or that lived in that area. So therefore, they had to have a once every 10 or once every 20 year low fire burning to remove the undergrowth to avoid the high temperature canopy fires that would kill it if they wanted to maintain the forests or that woodland that it was then. And there is absolutely no doubt that they had this different regime for different parts of Australia. So in Northern Australia, they burn every three to six years on a pattern burning program that was designed to lift the fertility and then also introduce uh, a green pick um, for once again, the fauna that they were managing or harvesting, if you like, for their food. Then you look at, say, come down uh, onto the East Coast and down along the the, um, Great Dividing Range, they created a corridor burning pattern where they'd burn five to 20 years, but they would burn more frequently down in the valleys and the slopes and less frequent on the ridges. And the idea was to maintain a corridor of trees to guide the fauna um, in a certain direction and provide opportunities so they could get close in a slightly denser woodland to a burnt clear savanna land to actually make it easy to hunt. So that meant you had a different fire regime depending on where you were on the topography of the landscape and entirely different fire regime right across uh, the geography of Australia. That fire regime was undertaken to make it easy to harvest food and also to maintain the land, to increase soil, to increase the soil fertility. So the fire regime was exceptionally important part of the culture and the maintenance of the land by the Aboriginals. So why didn't we look at what had been done all those thousands of years before and learn from that when we set up if you like, white man's Australia? Oh, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, if you take it from the perspective we invaded and we invaded by our superiority and we didn't consider that Aboriginal Australia had a culture, let alone a society, therefore we didn't take the time to look at what they were doing and how they were managing it. That's one aspect But in actual fact, that's a minor aspect. The major aspect is the diseases we introduced. And based on the the studies in America, where they estimate 95% of the native Indian population was wiped out by disease before the European invaders got to that various country, um, it would be fair to say that a lot of the knowledge was lost due to disease quite early on, prior to 1850. Amongst the Aboriginal people? Amongst the Aboriginal people, yes. Yeah. So um, there's estimates the original population was potentially one and a half million based on a 60% loss of disease. But if you take the American example, um, the population could have been higher in the two to three million category in Australia beforehand. But nevertheless, there was a huge Um, death rate caused by the diseases we introduced prior to us getting into that country. So by the time we got to the country, we saw a country that was nowhere near as burned as frequently as recorded by the early European mariners. If you look at um, the very first 
mariner, the Dutch, when they came to Western Australia, they passed through three days of smoke before they saw the coast. And Captain Cook recorded smoke every day, which wasn't what the explorers um, noted when they went inland. So that stage disease had already hit. Mary Gilmore, in her recollections in her books, uh, one of them in published in 1922 and the other in 1936, commented about the culture um, and the history and the burning pattern and the type of agriculture practised by the Aboriginals from when she grew up in the 1860s in, in Wagga Wagga. But she got castigated to even suggest that, that they had, uh, the Australian Aboriginal had, a culture that was that sophisticated. So it wasn't until more recently um, with Bruce Pascoe and the Dark Emu of, of 2014 and work done by a lot of archaeologists that we're now starting to, to realise that Aboriginals practised quite a sophisticated, sustainable culture to maintain the land. So why did we not pay attention? Well, two reasons. We were too damn arrogant when we came in. And secondly, we wiped out most of the knowledge in the, in the elder people um, that could be that had of the landscape. Now, a lot was still retained because they had a sophisticated knowledge retention system, um, which has only just been explored. But nevertheless, a large amount of knowledge was lost from all but the, the desert mobs and the desert mobs have lost it only in the last 20 or 30 years because of lack of uh, initiated uh, Aboriginals um, to pass the knowledge on. So in answer to your question, why are we only just encountering and discovering this now? Because we have to. And that's forced us to look back and see, hang on, somebody lived in this landscape for at least 60,000 years. Somebody altered the landscape um, to suit them. And to get back to soil, for instance, the, the Pilliga, country, which you'd know the Pilliga country. In New, so Western New, Western South, New South, Wales. South Wales. The Pilliga country has an unusual soil characteristic, and being a soil scientist, I've always got to bring it back to soil, don't I? Um, so it has an unusual soil characteristic, and it, it has an alkaline um, topsoil and an, an acidic, uh, a sandy alkaline topsoil and an acidic clay bee horizon. Okay. So well, well, that means that's not possible. Top bit. And then the bit underneath yes. that the roots gets down into. Now, normally it's the other way around in Australia, is that you, you increase alkalinity with depth because of the way Australia weathers. Um, but in this instance, um, the Pilliga has a reverse profile to that expected, and that's managed by the alkalinity of repeated burning. So they have resulted in that country being able to be managed for productivity, for increased fertility and potentially increased available for phosphate in country where it's really low by frequent burning. Um, and a soil scientist picked this up in the late 1980s, and he got, also got castigated then for suggesting that the Aboriginals had a sophisticated management of landscape. And that was as recent ago as, as, as you and I starting our careers, Chris. Um, so... There's only been a more recent change in the last 10 years to actually delve deeper into the knowledge. Would it be fair to say, Philip, that in fact 
the fact that we did ignore that and the fact that maybe we didn't have an opportunity to learn it because there weren't as many Indigenous people around who that we were talking to contributed in a major way to the circumstances which has resulted in what we've just seen were these huge areas of very, very hot fires. Can I break that question down to a couple of parts to respond respond to you, Chris? Uh, Essentially, if you look at what the explorers did when they arrived, only one of them, as as I said last time, um, who was a scientist, and that was Stress Leckie. And he was the first to record the organic matter um, and some of the, dare I say it, um, observations on how the Aboriginals related to the land and managed the land. And he found organic matter at levels 10 times higher than now. He found streams that were clear and that that uh, regularly um, refreshed the land with water by the way they flowed. They weren't deeply incised by ours now. And he found land that, and all, all uh, explorers were, talk about verdant land, well inland. And this wasn't just after, you know, channel, channel country floods. This was verdant most of the time they went out. Um, so we're dealing with a landscape that's very, very, very different now. So how did that come about? Well, firstly, we expended the bank that the Aboriginals had built up, the natural history capital that they built up for us in having this marvellous carbon-enriched um, environment that was less prone to erosion. I'm not saying it wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't erosion, but less to prone to erosion and was managed to suit their needs to their population. So we came in and we looked at that and they'd set themselves up for drought, by the way. So they controlled their population to keep it at a level and to keep all the fauna at the level that was consistent to survive drought conditions. So when we came along, we expended that bank by several things. The first thing is we introduced clove hooved animals, which we talked about briefly last time. Um, and second... That, that means like cattle and sheep. That's right. That's um, I- introducing placental animals where mostly we had marsupial animals. So we introduced the clove hoof placenta animals to Australia that weren't suited necessarily for Australian soil. Um, then we didn't understand their practices. So basically ignored the way they managed the system. So we started to clear the ridges and worst of all, the the tops of the ridges. Um, And we brought in our sheep and cattle and we hit the grass hard. And the grass was a perennial grass that needed time to recover and we didn't give it time to recover. So we started to create bare ground. Um, That got much, much worse in the 60s. So in the 60s, there was firstly herbicides were introduced, um, way greater increased use of fertilisers. Um, one of the accidental implications or un- unexpected consequences of I- introducing uh, glycophosphate was the fact that you could now have a lot more land cropped. Um, the Green Revolution meant that we had dwarf wheat species that meant we could push wheat out past Ardlethan. Um, irrigation, which is way out west. Way out west, which was sheep country prior to that. Irrigation together with the herbicides meant that, you know, Moree to Wee War suddenly became cotton country. So you had this huge area of exposed land, soil, that wasn't exposed before. On top of that, 
looking at the cattle, you know, which is which is your area of expertise more so than mine, but the introduction of the Indus species of cattle, um, the Santa Gertrudis, the drought masters. Brahmins. Uh, the Brahmins, et cetera. Um, they were resistant to the cattle tick, um, which meant we could now introduce cattle into areas that hadn't been. The Black Poly Pipe opened up water supplies into areas within the semi-arid zone that never had intense um, animal usage before. So suddenly we had a whole lot of feral animals. Um, the camels being let go in the 30s now starting to grow, grow up. The, the uh, brumbies, um, the donkeys, and then the increase in kangaroos. So they all increased with the result of our practices and no one was managing them. So what happened was that these practices meant that way more land got bare. In fact, if you, that's why we're collecting this data now, if you plot the rise in temperature across Australia against the increased bare land, you'll find it's just the same as CO2, is that uh, as you increase the amount of bare land, we've increased how hot Australia gets. So I'd just like to make a simple analogy, for instance. Um, Greenhouse gases, everyone knows, are are a blanket. They hold heat in. But I'll ask you this. When you go to bed during winter and you throw your doona back, if you throw it back and before you get in, you put your hand on on the, the bottom sheet, it's the same temperature, isn't it, Chris? Sure. It's the same temperature as the the room temperature. Now, you get in and throw the blanket on, uh, the doona, duvet on top of you, and within 20 minutes, it's really warm and toasty, probably even quicker. And I can't speak for you, Chris, but I'm... I'm I normally throw it off again. Well, I'm a solid build and and my wife's not. And so she needs like equivalent to a a three or four blanket doona and I just go on a bare sheet. So there's a difference in in body heat putting putting out the temperature. So I'd now like to go back to the land. So... What CO2 does is it stops um, radiation getting out at night and bounces it back onto um, the land. But if the land itself is getting hotter, then that means the effect has been exaggerated and pushed along quicker. And this is considered in the models when they look at clearing of land, but it's not considered to look at the reverse. What happens if we take Australia, which prior to... Uh, uh, our arrival, um, our invasion, if you like, depending on your point of view, from being 90 to 100% vegetative covered to now in the arid zone is less than 30% vegetative covered and right through the semi-arid and the agronomic zone um, is in parts of the year, you know, 80 to 90% bare, so only 10% covered and other parts of the year up to 80 to 90% covered. So we have a situation where vast amounts of Australia now gets hot and when it gets hot, the highs stabilise. So the high pressure areas, the, yep. the sort of the, the sunny weather sort of pressure cycles. Because the heat's keeping rising. Yeah. Um. And so you've got a zone where, where right around Australia it's got hot. And if the monsoons can't get in to re-green the land, it gets hotter. And the hotter it gets, the more it stops the lows coming in from up north, the monsoonal lows, and then the uh, Antarctic lows coming up. So, for instance, this season, Melbourne has had a very cold summer because the lows haven't been able to get up into Australia. They've stayed down. Um, 
So we're dealing with an, a, basically a, a high parked over Australia for three years. And that's not only to do with the currents off Australia and their behaviour in the Indian and Pacific Ocean, but is, I suggest, principally to do with the heat of the land caused by our practices. So, so we're talking about fire. When, when you have constant burn-offs all the time, of course, in a sense, that's clearing the land, but it's also allowing the regrowth of the grasses. Is that, is that what you're suggesting happened with the... Well, the- what the Aboriginals did was what we call low-temperature burns, and they burnt into the winds, and, and they burnt in the evening. So they burnt when the temperature was down and the dew was there. They often burnt at the end of the dry season as well, which was slightly higher temperature than doing it at the at, at the end of the wet season. But by doing it at the end of the dry season, it allowed the moisture immediately to impact um, with the more mineral content available by the burn, the higher alkalinity, the greater phosphate. And it's a low temperature burn. So that means it keeps the nitrogen in the soil, it keeps the seed bank there, it keeps the soil fauna alive. And what that does is generate an opportunity to get the green pick come through to the kangaroos and keep the fertility running for three to four years. So in our modern world where we've got now huge areas locked up as national parks legislatively, you can't hunt in them, you can't even drive in a lot of them. You know, it's impossible to get in. When there is a fire, there's obviously a bigger build-up. And then we have other areas which are being basically intensively cropped with sewer crops, very even vegetation, even though they rotate from year to year. So there's two things you've talked about. You've talked about the fact that the Aborigines didn't burn the ridges, that they burn in the valleys, and secondly, that they weren't hot fires, they were kind of ground fires. So in, moving on from here, I mean, we've just had effectively the biggest reduction burn that you've ever seen in the history of Australia, I guess, but it's been a hugely hot fire. So it's sterilised a lot of that country. Moving on from here, what lessons can we learn then that will give us a much better outcome in the future, given the lessons learned in the past? Can I put it back to you just a little bit? Um, they, it's not they didn't burn the ridges, they burnt the ridges at less frequency. Okay. Um, and it's not that they didn't burn um, what we now call the, the forests of, of the snow country. They burnt at a less frequency. And it's not that there wasn't wildfires then, they were, but, but they weren't as extensive and they were contained by the pattern burning or the corridor burning um, factors that they had. But sort of back more to your, your question is that... Um, we need to evaluate as a society how we want to manage our land, not just at a farm level but a community level and at a catchment level and out to a state level. So it's if we're prepared to tolerate these fires, fine, but we're going to continue to run down our natural bank of carbon and our species and we are basically going to destroy this land within a generation and a half or so. Um, if we find that unsatisfactory then we have to look at addressing the options presented to us by somebody that we, or some group of people that are here for 60,000 years ahead of us. Now, we've got way more people. So we have to combine the science of our knowledge together with the, the law of traditional landscape management to create a new sustainable option. Bringing all that back to fire again, moving on from this wave, this time now with, with the fires that we've had, 
what do we need to do? If you were the Prime Minister now and you were now given the top three priorities of how to manage the land in the future, what would be your top three priorities? The first priority, obviously, is the warning system and the management system to make sure our people are kept safe. So that's the first, but that's not my expertise. Let's put that one aside. The second one is to to bring the botanists together with the soil scientists, together with the fire experts, together with traditional owners of the area. And, and using the mountain ash as an example, if you know that mountain ash won't flower for 20 years, then you've got to have a management of litter to avoid a canopy, a, two disastrous canopy fires within a 20-year period because then you're going to wipe out the entire mountain ash problem. So let me just delve a little bit back to the soil. If you look at the soil associated with a severe fire, with temperatures exceeding 600 degrees C, um, holding for um, over several minutes at a location, unlike Northern Hemisphere, we don't have thick litter layers on our... um, uh, above our topsoil. They call them uh, humus layers. Ours, well, why don't we? Um, because we don't have the annual drop of leaves. We have a constant drop. Um, we have a, a lot more energy expended into bark and we have um, less rainfall in the first place. And then we have ants. And ants are, are quite efficient um, together with the fungal system of of taking the seeds um, down I- into the ground. Really? Okay. So and we don't have the same sort of build-up of topsoil or, or the organic layer above the topsoil as they do in, in Europe and the US. But nevertheless, we have a, a litter there that burns. If it burns very quickly, it now then gets to the soil. And if you're burning at very high temperatures, you're sucking oxygen in. Not only are you sucking it in from, a, from the surrounding areas, which creates all those tornado effects, um, but you're also sucking it in from the soil. So what you're doing is you're killing the soil fauna due to an absence of oxygen initially and then later due to heat. So this is earthworms and bacteria and fungus and all that stuff. And fungi is really, really important. Fungi and ants are really, really important in our system. So then you have a big ash dump, a high alkalinity dump, which lifts the pH, which makes it hard for fungi to get going. You kill the ants. You also, if the fire's hot enough in the canopy, you burn all the eucalypts, um, protected seed pods so they don't have a seed release at the end of the fire. Because some of the Australian plants only germinate after a fire. Yes, a moderate fire. But an extreme fire, no. So the seed pods are designed to open upon a moderate fire or on a smoke with a certain chemical smoke reaction. Um, and the mountain ash are no different, is that they do open after a fire. But if your canopy fire's been severe, it burns the seed pods um, and doesn't allow the seed, the seed germination to occur. It also hardens the ground. Um, so if the seeds do fall, it makes it hard to get up. The ants are not taking the seeds down a bit to allow them to germinate from a bit below the surface. The ground uh, has lost its nitrogen, um, because you burnt so hot, so you've lost nitrogen, which allows the acacias, the wattles, to invade. Why is nitrogen important? Um, nitrogen, all plants need not, in fact, 
all uh, living life needs nitrogen, has a certain carbon to nitrogen ratio. So plants take their nitrogen from the soil. Certain plants have associations with certain microorganisms um, on their roots that allow them to fix nitrogen. Those plants in Australia are acacias, uh, casuarinas, um, but they're also all the legumes and the clovers um, have it and certain there's native versions of those as well. You can also get nitrogen from rock, which is where we get our phosphate from, but, but way less. I mean, basically you're, you're getting it um, from the air. So, or from dead matter. So if you don't have a recycling system of dead matter and you've lost your nitrogen from your soil, the only thing that can colonise, and, and most weeds have a, ni- a nitrogen fixation, early colonisers have nitrogen fixes associated with their roots. So you end up with um, nitrogen fixes coming in and they actually crowd out what's going to come later if the canopy's knocked off. If you've still got a, a few of the mountain ashes going, then that will seed and be fine. Canopy but, being the top leaves right up the top of the that, trees. That's correct. Mm. But if you don't, if you if you burnt everything back to, to stalks, then effectively you've completely changed the woodland or the forest in a manner that wasn't, in, you know, that we never intended to do. And certainly the Aboriginals were the same. that they Once they got a landscape that worked for them, they didn't intend to change it. Now, we actually haven't had the discussion of what landscape will work for us. And with the science we know about biopumping and wildlife corridors and the fact that we know that you can sacrifice up to 30% of land area without loss of production in, in either, either sheep and cattle or livestock or cropping um, is something that we have not put into the design of our farms. We're still operating on European-style designs, not, a, not Australian landscape designs. So my second point is very strong, is, is, is to work out a system that will design for different areas of Australia that's based on um, the biology of the trees and the uh, uh, fauna that we want to keep, um, the production values that we want to protect for the district and Aboriginal law. And those three meshes of science, um, of forestry science, of fire science, of agricultural science, of soil science, of geology, mixing with Aboriginal law will allow us to create a new mosaic of moving forward for a new productive, sustainable future. Somewhat different to the Aboriginals, but they weren't all successful either. Um, the megafauna disappeared, and I'd say they learned from that mistake, and hence that potentially is why the dream time came about and so rigorously enforced is that they knew that they would make animals extinct if they didn't follow certain pathways. And we need to be very cognizant of that, is that we're in the process of wiping the planet out. Yeah, that's not a happy thought. But I mean, we're just coming back to the soil. So we've We've sucked the oxygen out of the soil. We've removed a lot of the nitrogen from the soil. We've also removed a lot of the microflora from the soil. We're almost starting from a, a medium. You know, what, is, what do we need to do now as farmers and as regulators to get that soil productive again? Now, we're not growing crops in the forests, but without effective forests, it's going to affect all the surrounding land as well. Yes, so it does. what do we need to actually do to get that going or is it just a time thing? We just have to sit and wait for it to happen by itself. Well, there's two things. is is to assess the burnt zone to see how badly it's burnt. And from my drive through some of it, 
and through um, TV images, there is still a reasonable amount of green canopy left. So some of the fires haven't got to the very top, but in some areas it was very, very intense and TV crews obviously haven't got into those. Um, So it would be, in those areas, it might be necessary to give nature a hand um, as we're doing with the fauna, but to consider very carefully what needs to be done with with the flora to to help nature recover. Um, Then it's a matter of working out exactly what is the frequency of fire burning and where we are going to burn in these these national parks and how we're going to expand the national parks into wildlife corridors through farming land for the benefit of production, I might add, and have a system of management of the, the national parks that also includes, and this might be a bit radical for some people, but um, traditional owner involvement. Why should that be radical? Seems so sensible to me. It does. Um, and um, if you're an Aboriginal, particularly with traditional law, I could see you'd be hugely frustrated that people don't listen. But right at the moment, there is still a view across part of society is that there is no value in the Dreamtime stories. Um, there's no value in their knowledge and their law. And unfortunately, that's been to our detriment. So certainly one of the olive branches we need to hold out as the combined people of Australians is to use all knowledge we can. As a scientist, teaching scientist, I have lots of young scientists working um, with me and uh, I often say to them, um, uh, science consists of utilisation of primary data and primary data is broken up into two things, measurement and observation. And there are five or six trained observers of populations of people who are observers. There are scientists, obviously. There are actually farmers, there are fisher folk, um, there are mariners, and there are traditional owners. Now, all the others apart from scientists um, have a filter over their observation. So the observations might be tied up in stories, it might be tied up in law. Um, there's all these sort of um, observations-based hypotheses from those observers. It doesn't make their observation wrong if you can get past the filter. So just because the Aboriginals have tied up, for instance, there is, and this might offend some listeners and I apologise if you're Aboriginal, but there is a a dream story about um, rainbow snake and possum fighting um, at the creation of the earth. And every time the rainbow snake went down, that became a waterhole. And every time it it went along, it became a river. so that story's woven into certain waterholes can only be used at certain times in certain areas and where they are on the landscape. But it's tied around this story of possum and rainbow snake fighting. So, um, and when you break the story down, you realise that it's telling you how to maintain waterholes, where they are, etc. cetera. Um, so yes, it's got a, a story and it's got, a piece of law, but it's based around a sound piece of observation that we as scientists can use to maintain the landscape. So that's why I think it's essential that if we look into the future of landscape, that we need to mine from historical sources, written sources, and um, graciously request that existing holders of Aboriginal law 
assist us in interpreting and providing it for a modern, sustainable Australia. Well, Phil, that has been one of the most fascinating podcasts we've done, I think. I think there's so much we can learn from this and we're not learning. We've got so much now to take heed of. I think we've been pushed as a population into compulsorily looking at what has been done by our forefathers in this country. And I just hope that that message gets through as we look at our land management as we move to the future. So thank you so much for being our AgriMinder today. Thank you for inviting me again, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. So much of our future as a country and as a food producer rides on how we manage our soil. The fires have been a tragedy, but they also provide an opportunity to reset our mindset on what we knew and to focus on what we understand about our environment now, combined with what we can learn from those with 40,000 years of history on the land. The question is, can we make that mind reset? As I meet our future generations of Australians, I'm very confident we will, if just in time. Join me again on Rebuilding Australia, when I'll explore the devastating issue of the half a billion animals lost in these bushfires and what this means for our ecology and our agriculture. If after listening to this episode, you would like to offer some of your help in our efforts to rebuild Australia, The greatest ongoing need amongst wildlife rescue groups at the moment is for new volunteers. And as so much habitat has been destroyed by the fires, they're also looking for people to offer up release sites on private land for rehabilitated wildlife. So contact the New South Wales groups that need volunteers, which include WIRES, Wildlife Rescue South Coast, Animal Rescue Collective, Four Australian Wildlife Needing Aid, also known as Fauna, and Sydney Wildlife. Visit their websites if you'd like to find out more. Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land was presented by Chris Russell, produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, with sound production by Matt Nikolic. Listener.